Okay, how are we doing? Welcome to the Mantale podcast. This is a podcast that I recorded about six months into my concussion. I'm currently about 13, 14 months into persisting post-concussion syndrome. And this was a conversation where I was truly trying to make make ends meet, trying to make a bit of sense from the muddle that I was in. And I've had some conversations, as you will have heard last week, and we released a podcast um, with Dr. Willie Stewart, who's a neuropathologist, does tons of research into concussion, subconcussion, and the brain damage and the effects that can come out of it, uh, and also how we need to change our opinions, how we think of concussion, how we think of simple knocks of the head, and, and he provides all the evidence and the facts around this. This podcast has been a long time coming to come out. As I say, I recorded it quite a while ago, over half a year ago. But this podcast is with Dr. Dan Engel. And Dr. Dan Engel specializes in psychiatry and neurology with a clinical practice that combines aspects of regenerative medicine, orthomecular psychiatry, integrative spirituality, and peak performance methods. So Dan is definitely an outlier with some of the stuff that he does, some of the stuff that he talks about, uh, and also some of the things that he has learned. I'd say he's gone definitely down an alternative route. He has said and he's mentioned that he's learned more about the human brain through a week in the jungle, the Peruvian jungle in the Amazon doing ayahuasca, which is an hallucinogen. And he's learned more doing that than all of the years learning psychiatry, learning about neurology and all of the different qualifications that Dan has. This was a really, really deep chat, a deep chat about sourcing meaning from suffering, I guess. And Dan also spoke about the initiations that tribal people would do when it comes to TBIs. And also we spoke a little bit about something that he went through, his own experience going through getting a brain injury, how that kick-started a new career, a new passion for him, but also the dips he's had, how he's framed it and how he's been able to get out of it too. All in aid of spreading some more awareness about mental health, about brain health. We didn't get too much into the neurology specifics about concussion, but I thought it was an outstanding outstanding viewpoint and something that I needed at that time six months into a concussion the writing was on the wall for me retiring from rugby league and he offered me an alternative view uh, something which is takes a bit more daring to go along with it takes a bit more open-mindedness but these are the conversations that we want to have on mentality and Dr. Dan Engel certainly gave us that so enjoy the podcast hope everyone is well Hope everyone is seeing some light at the end of the tunnel as normality can envelop our lives again once more. Really appreciate all of the support. Really appreciate everyone sending the messages and supporting Mentality too. Don't forget that you can get involved more and more with Mentality. We have actually launched our counselling service through Mentality. The counselling is exactly with someone who represents our values, who represents mentality's ethos and 
The man is John Bell, who is a psychotherapist, ex-rugby league player, and someone who encourages vulnerability, not just amongst everyone, but also rugby league players with his experiences in the game. And it is a way that we need to shift. It is a way that we need to progress. It is a way that we need to evolve. And talking about evolve, take a look at that. Take a look at mentality.co.uk. And if you're ready, make a start on your journey to progress. Take the invitation and don't see any tough times that you're having now as defeat. Take the invitation to get better, to learn more about yourself and to play a more fulfilling and deep game in life as we know it. Enjoy the pod. Dr. Dan, amazing to have you on, mate. Uh, amazing to have you on from, uh, is it Colorado you're, you're talking from? Uh, I had been living in Boulder for the last couple of years. I'm in Sedona for the summertime and I'm moving back to Austin in a couple of months. Amazing, amazing, mate. So it's um, a bit more exciting. What, what, what's, the, uh, what's the case and scenario that, that's going on over there in terms of COVID and, and stuff like that? A bit more freedom or is, is it um, looking... Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty variable here in the States, um, mm. where I'm at, I'm actually about halfway between Sedona and Phoenix. Yeah. And about two or three weeks ago, we were about the epicenter of, uh, contagion on an exponential rise globally wow. <laughs> in, outside of Maricopa County. Um, yeah. because you know, it's, I think people are just done with being yeah. in isolation Mate, there's only so long. There's only so long you can do it, isn't there? I guess we could we could certainly go down that rabbit hole, Dan, and um, that's certainly a, a battle that the human race has uh, right now, and something that we're all finding to be a challenge. Uh, but one um, passion, one sort of why that that we both share after um, speaking before, and and I came across you quite a while ago. Actually, I think it might have been 2017 time. Um, came across your book, The Concussion Repair Manual. Um, but I was all, almost reminded about you um, for, through a friend that I met the back end of last year called Roberto, Roberto Palomo, um, the El Salvadorian, um, LA living, um, yeah, uh, cool guy. He's a cool guy, some would say. Um, but he, he reminded me of you after this year, I've, after having um, suffering or been suffering with a concussion. Uh, currently mm-hmm. for, for six months um, and you know he outlined you as someone to talk to someone to get another opinion with and um, I'm particularly interested mate in in the way that you look at this problem the way that you sort of um, use integrative medicine uh, but also in your story which I think if we could go into mate from I know you, you may have done this quite a f- uh, many times, a few many times, but if you could go into your story, I know you played a bit of um, football, as we call it here, but soccer for, for you guys, um, and, and how the journey went on from there, because I realised that you did your psychiatry and neurology um, only a few years ago, is it, um, for, for, like, for topping off the, mm-hmm. the, other, the other stuff that you've got, the degrees that you've got, the, um, the sort of experience that you've got. 
Um, so if you could talk to us uh, about the start of your journey, mate, and maybe we can weave in some questions and, and some, um, some, some counters in, in there too, pal. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to do that. Real. So I played soccer for close to 25 years and over the course of that time had about a half a dozen direct significant concussions related to soccer. Well, the ones that were taking me to the emergency department and getting medical evaluations were a mix of soccer, skateboarding and snowboarding <laughs> and diving. Yeah, nice mix. And and the the fifth one, at least the the one of the most severe ones that ended me up in, you know, the hospital or getting evaluated was when I dove off a pier, hit a sandbar on the crown of my head and broke my neck. Uh, wow. had a compression fracture C5. And that was two weeks before medical school. So I had wow. just finished all my you know, formal college. I went to college to play soccer and didn't really know what I wanted to do after that. Um, cause I was just such, <laughs> I was so focused on playing ball yeah. and, uh, halfway through my college degree where I went at St. Edwards happened to have a really good pre-mib program. I was a chemistry major and my advisor asked me what I wanted to do with my chem major. And I said, you know, I don't really know. Um, I'm just doing chemistry cause I like, I like the math and the science and the architecture of it. And he recommended uh, for me to check out medicine. And the only context that I had for medicine was emergency care and surgical care medicine, where we're really good as allopathic physicians on the battlefield, in the ER, in the OR. We're really good in that arena, and we're not so good in preventative care or chronic care management. So I was going to go into um, one of those more hands-on, so to speak, fields. Like a reactive measure. Yeah, you know, it was my it was my greatest familiarity with medicine, and I love the problem solving. Uh, when you go into emergency department as a physician or a nurse or any of a healthcare provider on a first as a first responder, you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> you don't know you don't know what kind of situation you're walking into if you're going into the field or if somebody's coming into an ER. You don't know who's going to walk in the door, so it's constantly new. It's constantly exciting. Um, the field's constantly evolving as our acute care management technologies get better and better. And I, at that time, was really super driven, super focused, very young, um, like versus yin. I was also very young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. You know, as one of my teachers would say, I was full of piss and vinegar back then. And so I was set on either OR or ER care management. And then two weeks before med medical school started, it was a summer between college and medical school. Went down to the Gulf of Mexico, pretty close to where I'm from, uh, just to go fishing. And I completely forgot for whatever reason. I mean, we could talk about the, the meaning behind it. But for whatever reason, I forgot that the Gulf of Mexico is about thigh high water for about a mile into the surf. And so I dove off a pier, completely forgetting. And I had grown up in that area. It was just super strange. Um, and I was stone cold sober. That's the, everybody's next question. <laughs> like, were you drunk yeah, or were you yeah. high or what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. I said, no, you know, I was just, I just blanked out, so to speak in that moment and, um, dove, dove off a pier with my hands behind my neck, which I've never even dove to a swimming pool like that before. And so the first thing to hit in knee high water on this, um, oyster bed on this sandbar was my, the crown of my head. And so it was just this kind of straight axial load and blew out C5 
and um, climbed back up on the pier, walked back home, started getting really dizzy. And it was obvious. I just thought I had bad whiplash. And um, the first responders said, you know, you'll probably be okay because I could move everything. I could function and feel everything. But I got to the, I got to the ER and they did a, you know, first round x-ray and <laughs> this old country doctor comes in. He goes, boy, you got really goddamn lucky. <laughs> and I said, really? Uh, great. How? And he said, well, you broke your neck and um, we're going to have to transfer you to a trauma care hospital to get it taken care of. And on the way there, they gave me the option, whereas more like when I arrived and I talked to the neurosurgeon, he gave me the option of external fixation or internal fixation, which means rods along your spinal column, or you can wear this big cage called a halo screwed into your skull. And, um, you know, I, I was pretty familiar with combat sports and had broken a bunch of different bones. And I love braces and, you know, like the, <laughs> the external um, evidence that you've been through war and combat <laughs> and you made it out. Like, kind of like in that movie, I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, How to Train Your Dragon. It's yeah, such a yeah, yeah. little cartoon movie where like everybody's walking around with a prosthetic. You know, it's kind of like they're, they're <laughs> battle scars, yeah. right? It's you like, might as well oh, show it off. Yeah. Like the, that halo looks like the coolest thing ever. And, and that's how I started medical school for the first three months with my, um, you know, skull in this fixated, halo device and and you can't move at all and it's and it finally slowed me down and it finally helped me appreciate the fact that i had been just standing on the gas pedal and i didn't really enjoy high school and college that much because i was so i was such an adrenaline junkie i was so driven 4.0 captain of the team like ever you know all the accolades and it still wasn't enough and then finally i realized you know who am I trying to impress? Who's, who's kind of validation am I seeking? And what, what's really important here? And through that investigation and just a slowing down process, I realized, you know, I've been living other people's expectations and other people's lives for me. And so I realized I could step off of the gas pedal and be much more cruisy and really get to enjoy the humanistic arts and, and interpersonal medicine. So that led me into psychiatry and neurology. And I could, you know, I didn't have to make all A's across the board or the house is going to burn down. So I just got a lot more flexible with, with how intense I had been holding myself to the, this level of perfection. And all of this just started opening my 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 worldview smoked a little pot started listening to pink floyd you know started to really expand my horizons and i ended up having much more fun in in med school and residency than i ever had in high school and college just because i was i was less intense i was more open you had to chill out a bit you had to you had to rest I had to chill out a lot mm. pink floyd pink floyd will do that to you it's so good right particularly comfortably <laughs> numb first time oh, i heard that yeah. track i was like who the hell is this? Yeah, what is yeah. happening in my, and I was, you know, still sober the first time I heard it, but it just opened me up in a way that it was all of a sudden something totally new that I felt in a way I had been deprived of, but I was also so excited to now know what else I didn't know, or at least explore the edge of my comfort zone. And that eventually led me into psychedelic therapy. That eventually led me into more of the work that I'm doing now. And in retrospect, I see that 
that that jump off the pier landing on my crown was exactly like many of the stories in traditional cultures during a rites of passage ceremony when the apprentice is being welcomed, so to speak, into the next layer of his or her training, that the the teacher or the shaman, so to speak, or the the elder will take a club and smack them on the top of the head, right on the crown, to essentially empty out everything that they thought they knew in order to, kind of like an avatar when the tribal mama says, you can't fill a cup that's already full, in order to open up to be able to receive the new instructions, the new operating manual, so to speak. Wow. So th- there's a lot in there, mate. I, I don't know how, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much um, the whacking of over the head with a club um, would be allowed right now in, in these Western parts. Um, Not much. I guess, I, guess we have, I, guess, I guess we have sports like rugby league and we have sports like um, American football where you, where you pick the odd um, knock to the head. And I've had a fair few, mate, after our last conversation. So that's yeah. really interesting to hear. Um, and, mate, you touched upon it a little while ago. Before I ask you, I'd love to know what your take is on a song like Comfortably Numb. We're probably only speaking to a, a small audience here, but um, I love that song. I love I love Pink Floyd, love their albums. It puts you in a bit of a place which is um, not quite um, yourself, I guess. You just, you, you know, it's, it's very explorative music. Mm-hmm. Um, would love to know what, what, what your take is on that and, and, and what you feel um, when, you, when you listen to that sort of music. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot happening when you're going through a process of personal discovery and the environment is now drawing you further in to the unknown. So for me, that music, because I grew up in, in South Texas, San Antonio and Austin, uh, listening to classic country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Johnny yeah. Cash. Uh, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, you know, Bellamy Brothers, like the old school. George Strait was one of my, you know, family's friends. And, you know, so it was like a a fairly um, beautiful music too. It's just very different. And that's what I knew. That was my norm. And so now I have this experience where I have a, a significant injury as an initiation. And that's part of the reason I wanted to bring that story up in detail, because it's been my experience that many people have head injuries as an initiation into the next phase of their life. Any injury can work that way. Any life crisis can work that way because crisis precedes transformation every time. And I haven't seen as consistently something that resets the psychology and neurology like a head injury because it's like the classic control alt delete when you reset your computer and unfortunately you can't predict it so the severity of the injury is not predictive of the outcome because you got a lot of people who have had really severe injuries and they have a fairly easy outcome you have other people who have had a fairly mild injury, have a really hard outcome. But if we just take that and boil it down to its essence, typically when somebody goes through, particularly somebody like you who you're in combat sports, you're playing rugby, you're getting banged around quite a bit. If you stack multiple injuries on top of each other, then you really start to have severe, significant, and long-term neurological ramifications. This is the 
CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But as a single injury, as a single agent, as a single like kind of blow, so to speak, it can really reorient a person to, as all injuries will do, as all initiations will do, it'll reorient us to our priorities, to a reflective experience of actually if we're living life in the direction that we choose internally at the core of our being, are we being guided by our own source code or our own internal GPS system, or are we living other people's expectations? Are we chasing external goals? Are we trying to consistently find our own self-worth through the validation of others and through what society says is success with X number of dollars and cars and possessions and the trophy wife or husband? You know, all of that is, these are all external measures of whether or not we're quote unquote internally doing it right. Yeah. And I do think that was a, a reorientation for you in specific. I know you, you 100%. mentioned like- yeah, 100%. And that's kind of why I wanted to go into that story. And I have talked about that story, but it's really consistently compelling, especially in conversation with somebody like yourself, because you're consistently in the arena to avail yourself and your body towards a given goal. And I love team sports, right? It really, in many ways, brings out the best in us. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, when you're in combat sports and you're consistently putting your nervous system in danger with the expectation of the crowds and the team and the management for you to get peel yourself up off the bloody deck, regardless of whether or not, you know, your brain's kind of like reconfigured, kind of like if, if it's not bleeding, then it's not hurting, so to speak. But TBIs are they're an invisible injury. And that's part of the reason that it's, it's so challenging for many people to understand what it's like when you got your bell rung and you get consistently rung. And then all of a sudden now you have post-concussive syndrome and you can't think straight. You barely know who you are and you have to start really doubling down on the stimulants to wake up and then on the depressants to try and get to sleep. But no one knows that unless they've lived through it and you can't explain it to anybody because they can't see it. Yeah. And I think Dan, that, that you, you are sort of, I know you've got some wording um, in your bio on your website that you, you're sort of pioneering a, um, oh, I've got it written down actually, you're pioneering the future psychi- psychiatric healing centers using conscious consciousness expansion tools for root cause healing and total life transformation. I'm really glad I wrote that down because um, I'd have some questions, um, which I hope you provide me a source of comfort um, in terms of CTE. I'm not sure whether I will have developed CTE, whether it's um, possible to stop that curve, um, and what what you know the head knocks that I've had um, obviously mean as a as a as a player. You know, I'm a rugby league player now. I'm a captain. Um, I'm you know uh, I'd say a leader of a team and. You mentioned and you spoke about the team sports. Like, I, I've I've lived the life to to um to play to play these games alongside teammates and and to put every sinew and every last part of myself on that field and and drive a performance and drive a win and and, and drive something which at the end of the game I can be happy with, even if that is 
um, getting my head knocked around multiple times and stuff like that. Um, so mate, there's, there's been, a, I'd say, a rite of passage in that sense, um, you know, if we're talking sort of tribally or um, in, in, in sort of masculinity ways, old school masculinity ways. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess the the, one, the, the, the the point that I'm trying to make is, you know, CTE is hard to sort of find out about. It's sort of undeterminable as you're alive, I believe. You, you may be able to prove me wrong, I'm not sure. But, um, but also that sort of, do you find the way that, that you speak to people when they've suffered concussions and to be able to offer that alternative viewpoint that, that you're talking about um, bringing up you know the, the old tribal rituals and and talking about the sort of zoomed out bird's eye perspective of of what meaning could be of what um, you know the the intricate developments in one's life could mean mm-hmm. do you do you find that that people find a source of comfort in that and, and they find a, a freshness and um, a new perspective to be taken and also i'd, I'd love to know a bit mm-hmm. more about the ct so i don't um worry about that for the rest of my life too <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah well let's yeah. Let, we'll, we'll we'll take each of those um and you can let me know if if i leave anything out yeah um, sure so let's talk about the initiation piece and the rites of passage, because it, it is something that historically we are pretty devoid of, at least in our culture here in the United States. Mm-hmm. We typically here do not have rite of passage ceremonies or the recognition of a, a ritual and the importance of reflecting the process that a person's going through from one stage of their life to the next. The closest thing we have to that is like high school graduation or maybe getting your first car or reaching 21 and now being able to officially and legally drink alcohol. These, these are rites of passage, so to speak, but they're not really codified in an appreciation for the personality construct that's going to mature from one previous stage into the next. They're sort of devoid of meaning, aren't they? They're not particular right. to you as an individual. This the milestones which everyone in the world would hope right. to do. Right. Yeah. They may have meaning for the person at that time, but there's not a really deep appreciation for the depth of its meaning, which you're suggesting, and it, it leaves a person a bit immature in their development. And there's a really good um, speaker named uh, Maladoma Somme um, from the Dagira tribe in Africa. And he, I think he's a PhD in um, anthropology. He's very well-spoken about rites of passage ceremonies. He's probably the most well-spoken that I've, I've heard. And consistently, the recognition point is that those cultures where there are rites of passage ceremonies for example, from childhood to adulthood, from adulthood to eldership, from eldership to exit day, so to speak. When those rituals, whatever those rituals look like, and they're usually codified per the culture itself, or at least the family system itself, whenever they're present, there's the celebration of moving through this process from one stage of existence into the next. And there's a process of metabolizing the grief that 
goes along with the loss of, for example, if we just take childhood into adulthood, the grief that goes along with the loss of childhood, that now the child is not going to be so consistently dependent on mom and dad for safety and security and direction, and is going to now have to take more and more responsibility of their own lives. That's part of the excitement. That's part of the opportunity. That's part of the freedom. That's part of the individuation. That's a natural part of life. But if we don't grieve that part that we've lost, then there's a thread that keeps us potentially tied to that old experience because it hasn't been metabolized and then or integrated into or incorporated into this new whole self moving forward. It's kind of left undone. And anything that's left undone that is a, is a psychological cord leaves us in some ways trapped in the past. And we have a culture in the States that is fairly adolescent and fairly immature. It's a very me, mine, and I culture. It's very myopic in its view of how to live life. Like, I'm going to get all mine right now to the exclusion of all the other species on the planet, to the exclusion even of the coming generations. And kind of like an adolescent would do, I'm going to express my power. I'm going to find like my identity. At times that might be competitive and aggression to others that are like quote unquote in the other tribe or on the other side of the tracks or, you know, all of these ways that we're trying to find ourselves as individuals is mirrored in us as the United States trying to find ourselves as a culture. And we've been very identified as a culture. And we have, you know, the leader of our political system right now has a very similar kind of archetype. It's, it's more aggressive. It's more confrontational. It's more egotistical. It's um, more narcissistic. And we all have those qualities. This is, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint him as quote unquote wrong. It's just an example of the fact that it's a great, um, like personification of a culture that hasn't gone through its levels of maturity in order to be like the rest of the natural world, which is cooperative and respectful. All natural ordered systems that that span and and all life, by the way, <laughs> has evolved from natural ordered systems of cooperation and mutual respect for everybody else because everybody, by the way, lives on one home, this floating water rock that we call Earth. And if you have a dominant species that is consistently acting out of integrity to the whole, then it tends to be excluded and eventually its genetic information don't propagate because nothing lives in an ice, nothing lives in a vacuum in nature or in isolation. So all of this is to say again that these rites of passage ceremonies are really important. And there are three primary factors. Classically, when you look at rites of passages, there are um, stage one is disruption, stage two is transformation, and stage three is incorporation or integration. Stage one, disruption, means they're going to get ruffled from what you've known, your previous safety zone, and you're going to be introduced into stage two, into this process of transformation that if you're taking the old, well, not even old, but it's more like archetypal um, example of the caterpillar going into the butterfly, there's that middle stage of the cocoon, into the shadow, into the darkness, into the unknown, to get in touch with fear. And to get in touch with all of that that we've been 
holding back, trying to avoid. Maybe that also looks like shame and guilt and old trauma and anything that is limiting us from being our most expressed self, so to speak. And then through the metabolism of all of that deeply held shadow material, then gradually through grace and time and putting in our own effort, because it is our own work to do, and nobody's going to save us from the cocoon. And if you try and rescue the butterfly from the cocoon too early, and it doesn't wiggle out and squeeze out on its own, then it wouldn't have exercised its wings and lubricated them in order to fly. So there's a lot of archetypal symbology in there that's very applicable to the human process of being, being able to go through our shadow and be more expressed on the other side and integrated into a more whole human. And when we're a more whole human, then we're living into our fullest potential. As we all have a Christed self within us, Jesus said that too, all these things I do, you can do and more. And there've been many other Christed beings, the Buddha, Gandhi, um, teachers and avatars across the ages who lived as examples to the community as the, the realized potential of where we're all evolving towards. So that's not to say that everybody that goes through a head injury is going to wake up as Jesus, <laughs> but it is to say that if we can utilize the process of slowing down, and oh, by the way, that's what COVID is doing right now on the yeah. planet. It's this yeah. huge global rite of passage because it's being we're going through disruption. I don't think yet we're really in phase two in, in the deep shadow material investigation and in, uh, intimacy and therefore metabolization of that. I think we're headed. I think it's going to get a little harder before it gets easier. Um, but you know, everybody's doing their own kind of um, walk along that that collective pattern, and then eventually we come out the other side, realizing that in many ways we were living unsustainably. We were living out of integrity with our true self, or our deeper wisdom, or our our now recognized potential of how we can live and what we do choose to. Um, hold as our values and our virtues and our and our new way of living. So let's bring it back then to head injury. You talked about CTE and we started bringing that up. Yes, there are neurological ramifications to head injury for sure. There are also psychological ramifications to all traumatic experiences where we lose a loss of function. And that's one of the core fears. It, you know, one of the four primary core fears, one is loss. And one aspect of loss is loss of function, loss of autonomy, loss of identity, all these experiences of loss. And the ego doesn't know the difference between annihilation and transformation. So in the ego, particularly somebody like yourself, and I'll put myself in that perspective, when I had um, my last significant concussion, it was actually while I was, funny enough, studying neurology in um, my early psychiatric residency and I got turned upside down on a snowboard park, my goggles frosted over kind of a cloudy day. I was already tired. We'd just been jamming all day and I was just going to go hit this terrain park on the way down to grab lunch. And, um, I got turned upside down and I couldn't cause I couldn't see very well. I couldn't tell how many kickers there were. And <laughs> I, I tried, I clipped one and got turned upside down and smashed my head into the other one put an eight inch crack in the back of my helmet. And there was, 
you know, it was the first time of all the injuries I'd had, even breaking my neck, where this internal voice said, you just crossed the line. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh, that doesn't sound good. And sure enough, I started having really bad post-concussive syndrome. And, it, and mm-hmm. the, the challenge for me was losing my identity, mm-hmm. my identity of somebody that could think for themselves, that could function pretty coherently. Um, you know, my brain being able to consistently focus on a given task with good memory, with good attention and concentration, all those things went out the window. So there's this big fear of loss. And and that's the biggest fear when we take a broad kind of more meta position view is not so much the fear that we're not going to be able to get through what's happening in the moment. Sometimes that happens, especially if the pain's been there for so long. The big fear in this kind of arena is more like, the fear that you're never going to get better in the future and it's always going to be this way. Yeah. And so when when hope comes in, then it starts to alleviate that fear. So part of what I found my best role to play, and I've run um, or medically directed and supported other teams to run concussion care centers, um, the most recent of which was uh, a clinic called Revive outside of Denver, Colorado, where our focus is on TBI and concussion recovery. And while seeing many people in that arena, what I recognized is, yes, I can put together protocols for people's neurologic healing for sure. And one of the things that the, that's the most supportive in leaning into all of those neurologic technologies is the psychological telling a new story and and the new story is yes this and if i'm speaking to a client yes this can be an initiation for you how have you been living out of integrity with your with your own inner wisdom up to this point is there a way that you've been living your life that was not in alignment with what you really want to be doing or who you really are and what you're really here to do to share to the back to the collective like just the telling of that initiation story helps a lot of people now start to participate. And that is such, if I, if I had to say if there was one factor that changes people's trajectory from consistent suffering into progressive healing, it's the switch from victimization into participation. And if a person knows that there is meaning or potential purpose in the process, then it's much easier to participate. So everything that we've just been talking about over the last half hour, I think, is building up to that cardinal moment. And that is the same for all experiences when we're going through a process of suffering. It's an opportunity to actually reclaim our faith and to slow us down and reprioritize our life. And when we have a story that puts it into a new context, now we can ask the question, what is mine to do in this moment and how can I participate? Yeah, I thank you for sharing all that. I think it's an amazing way to look at it. And, it, uh, you know, touching on the idea of the source of, of comfort. Um, there's loads of things that I want to ask. I want to ask whether you think that you mentioned it briefly there, just talking about like the, the way that, that people act out of their sort of, out of, um, out of tangent or out of line with their inner um, sort of drive, their inner, inner um, compass, um, which I think that does offer a lot of suffering for people. And 
if they're on the wrong narrative that doesn't fit with them, I think that that does provide the suffering, um, whether you have a head injury or not, to be honest. Um, and do you think there's a lot of friction going back to what you were talking about in terms of the disruption, the transformation, the integration? Do you think there's a lot of friction in and amongst that for men? Like the friction in not having the that pathway um, and... I wanted to ask you, talking to this, uh, talking to John John Bell, who's um, a psychotherapist who was trying to do a bit of work um, with mentality, um, but you were talking about the gestalt modalities, um, and I've only spoke about it briefly, but I think there's a there's there's an understanding that men can gain um, in this this chat that we're having um, with you talking about rites of passage, um, with with me talking to John about you know the, the the gestalt modality um or the the theory or the, the concept that there's there's different people or different sort of personalities if you like sat at the table uh, which operate in, in in each and every one of us um I'm, that's paraphrasing that's sort of guessing after the short conversation dan but do you think that that uh, more of an understanding and a an acceptance of where we're at as human beings, especially like you say, I think a lot of people will need to hear this during this time um, over the course of, of COVID. I felt a lot of those things. I felt that loss or that fear of loss of uh, function, and at times, mate, that 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 loss was was staring me in the face because it's every waking moment of of your operation um, as a human being, and and. You, you do fear the future. You do fear the the moments which aren't actually there right now. But you fear whether it's going to come back. You fear whether, like you say, you've crossed a line. You fear the feeling of being inoperable. You fear that the memory loss, the the lack of concentration, the conflicts that you have um, in your mind, and 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 also like you, you know when you're going through something like as strong as a concussion for six six months um in a lockdown it's um it's a tough mm. tough old gig it's a tough old gig and it's something which i can completely relate to i think you know that when you're talking about the the idea to to pick up your narrative or pick up your participation um you've got to do it and 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 there's moments where it flashes to me and there's moments where it feels really strong to to get back and participate and then there's there's the physical symptoms which tell me that i've got to stop i've got to heal i've got to rest but i think it's more of a um an internal decision internal participation as well to 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 be okay with a narrative that that you weren't expecting 6 months ago if if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense um and mm-hmm. yeah i mean i've you know, we keep throwing a lot at each other, but I think it's good. I think we're we're getting we're getting things out of it, which which um, is is brilliant. I I need to hear a lot of this stuff, and I'd love to to see what you think in terms of the the global nature of of what men uh, need to hear talking about this disruption, transformation, integration, the friction that people feel when things aren't going to how they planned it, or things aren't feeling the way that they thought they should be when gaining mm-hmm. the accolades, gaining the money. Um, and also if you could touch on the gestalt modality as well, mate, and, and to see if that, that merges in with that, if, if, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So what we'll do is we'll, we'll keep the conversation around more of this psychological component and nature. And towards the end, we'll move into the neurologic. Yeah. Because there are cool. some strategies. I know when people hear your story and they listen to your podcast, they know that you're a combat athlete and you have had concussions and they're oftentimes going to want to know, okay, what are the clear neurologic strategies yeah. that I can use too? Yeah. And, and if we can also throw in there as well, mate, the, we had Dan Carcillo on the podcast not so long ago. Oh, so nice. Yeah, ice hockey player who's had... Yeah, uh, I know Dan. 100, yeah, 100 fights on the ice. You might have seen him. He had 100 fights on the ice. He's um, had, well, he says seven diagnosed concussions, but, you know, we all say... Oh, he's had a lot more than that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm exactly the same ballpark, mate. So it's, um, it, it's interesting. He was talking about these tools that you mentioned in the, the conscious consciousness expansion tools and and i know you did a lot over in um in the amazon i believe it was um to, mm-hmm. to really sort of thrust yourself into that world so if you can weave that in in into a lovely dr dan engel monologue mate that'd be awesome too yeah absolutely so we'll go uh we'll go psychology and then we'll we'll cruise into psychedelics and then we'll go into neurology cool sounds good Sounds like a, a lovely, lovely trip out. That yeah, was. awesome. And, and at, at any point, in, interrupt me too if you have questions because sure. I, I, I can get on a bit of a riff. <laughs> yeah, sure, mate. The, the two things that you mentioned in, in regards to the psychology piece I think are really important um, to, to discuss both individually and collectively. One is the archetype of the, the masculine and what does it look like to be a whole man in living in a good way, so to speak, at this day, time, and place in human history? And then how does that relate to a gestalt or like an organized experience of wholeness? Um, And to be transparent, gestalt psychology and gestalt therapy is not my area of expertise. Um, I do have familiarity with it to the extent that creating a gestalt is understanding the whole as um, something that's larger than the, just the sum of the parts. We're actually able to incorporate and see the totality of something. And we might call that pattern recognition or a better archetypal understanding of what's happening with a whole person that is also a, an amalgamation and an accumulation of all these individual parts. And I think of it like um, an orchestrator or an orchestra conductor where the conductor as a more unified experience of a whole self ego personality structure will be made up of multiple parts and those parts and, and personality subtypes are like the different bands, so to speak in the orchestra, you've got the horns and the drums and the strings and the vocals and, you know, all these various parts that when operating in harmony, create beauty, magnificent beauty, you know, where words are hard to describe. And when they're, those parts are acting in conflict to one another, then there's the expression of disharmony. And that can look like chaos and messiness and um, something that's not quite as beautiful, so to speak, to put it lightly. And so, this, this archetype of the masculine, where we are 
as a culture in both the individual societies and as a global family of humanity, so to speak, over the last several thousand years, the patriarchal, masculine-dominated archetype, which has actively subjugated the feminine archetype, and that includes not only the feminine in human form, i.e. women, but also the feminine in creation, i.e. the planet. And we have consistently made choices as men against the freedom of women for a variety of different reasons. And um, we could unpack that conversation a little bit more fully, but just maybe we'll summate it to say that for a variety of different reasons, whether it was a religious doctrine where the Holy Trinity is very still masculinized, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. Where's the, where's the women? in that trinity, in that unity. That's a potential religious conversation. And then in and, and the... What, just, I'll just jump in there, Dan. So what, what, what would that mean? Is sort of like, uh, I can't remember the word you, stopping the freedom of women or... Um, like subjugation. Subjugation, yeah. So in what, in, in what way would that be? Like, how would, does that look? Is that like sort of not allowing a feminine energy or is that sort of like... Yeah. Yeah, we could say that. That's I think that's a good description. Not allowing the feminine energy. There's, mm. there's that's a nice summation because the feminine yeah. energy is different than the masculine. It's supposed to be different. Yeah. We are yeah. we are the the physical, emotional, psychological, energetic, and spiritual complements of both. All life is. All life is born from the masculine and feminine in union. And if we look at the, just the, the development of life on the planet, that is the masculine archetype is the sun impregnating or penetrating the feminine archetype of the earth and creating all life. We are also the amalgamation of a masculine, i.e. sperm, and a feminine, i.e. egg, coming together and creating life. So we are all the products of union and we are all both inhabitants of our own archetypes of masculine feminine dynamics internally. Some people are genetically expressed as men and, and others are genetically expressed as women, but that doesn't mean that just because genetically I'm a man that I don't have any feminine part to my own beingness. And actually, it's important to know and recognize that I do. And the other is also true. So... When we have a, a culture that's evolved over thousands and thousands and thousands of years with various degrees of equanimity and harmony between the masculine and feminine archetypes, if we just look in recorded history over the last several thousand years, we can see that the patriarch has dominated and subjugated the feminine archetype. That, that's a global generalization. That's not true in every culture by any means. There are many what we might describe as more close to the ground so to speak reverential cultures that have more of a connection to the natural ordered world and see the importance of maintaining harmony and acknowledging the the position and the beauty and the importance of each of those archetypes the masculine and the feminine so i think it, it, you can make an, a pretty good argument on the global landscape that, that there's a big shift happening right now where the feminine archetype is rising, her voice is being heard, 
There's more and more recognition of the misuse of the masculine archetype and now more freedom for the feminine to actually speak that imbalance and that subjugation. It's fairly recent in human history that women were even offered the right to vote. Mm. And that is the right to be heard in their own choice. Crazy. A few hundred years prior to that, we were still burning witches at the stake, usually women, usually for fear of their power and of their essence, like you described. And so there's a big shift turning. There's a big reclamation of the importance. And, and sometimes in, you can see in many examples where the pendulum is swung to the other side, where the the feminine in order to be heard and feel safe to express is now adopting a masculine flavor many even women politicians have more masculine attributes and maybe even more masculinized positions and the masculine archetype is very linear it's very acquisitional it's essentially this is i would call this the mastery mindset What's the goal? Why do you want it? What are your beliefs about it? And what's your strategy to acquire it? Now that has its place for sure. It's really stimulated consistent new uh, technology and new advancements and pursuing the goals, um, including on the, the battlefield, so to speak, laying it all on the line, putting our bodies through trials and tribulations for the goal of the prize. Complement to that is the feminine archetype and the feminine mindset and psychology, so to speak, which is not linear. It's more circular and spiral. It's not so clear in its acquisition or linear direction. It's more fluid and dynamic. There's a lot more opportunity to be curious and to flow with the with what's happening in the present moment it's more somatic body based versus mind or intellectual based um there's more of a shadow aspect and this is part of the integration that happens through suffering experience when the masculine dominant culture that's so driven so linear standing on the gas pedal <laughs> with the Tetris of the calendar from one thing to another, and it's fast-paced, fast-paced, fast-paced. Suffering will slow us down. Suffering in a masculine culture will bring us into a feminine process in order to help us incorporate into a greater experience of unity within ourselves. And so what does that look like? That means like when the caterpillar is going into the cocoon, that cocoon is all shadow. It's all soupy. It's all the, the things that we've been putting underneath the rug or in the closet that we wanted to avoid that now comes barreling out into the space. And there is some fear around that predictability that now things are really fucking messy. And how do we deal with it? Well, if we're not taught how to deal with it and we don't have a culture that, that appreciates it or can give meaning to it, then it's easy for us to make ourselves wrong for it. So many people make themselves wrong for going through a challenging experience, having a suffering process, and therefore now you have the advent of modern day psychopharmacology, 
which means it's not convenient to go through a suffering process or or be recontextualized in your identity of yourself and who you are and what you're here to do and like go through that shadow work. It's not convenient to the nine to five job or the educational system that is uh, an assembly line where kids are just trying to make widgets. If we talk, <laughs> if you take that Pink Floyd analogy, remember that part in the wall where they just like the, the kids on the assembly line, just that's a, that's an old educational model that was born from world war two making bomb, you know, B2 bomber parts. And it's a one size fits all model. It's an outdated system. We haven't evolved. So all of this to say that when we go through a process of integrating into different aspects of our wholeness, suffering will bring us to a slow point, to a reflection point. And we can honor the process of reclaiming the part of ourselves that we weren't feeding or nourishing before, that this is helping us come into contact with. So this big archetypal experience excuse me, experience globally and culturally is part of the the rescue, so to speak, of the importance of the feminine and going into the shadow and reclaiming our faith and having curiosity in the process, but being able to know that we, when we are more integrated into wholeness, have the ability to alchemize our own psychological and mental process. That means when I get in touch with my... Go ahead. I was just going to say, where does this all sit, Dan, with your practice as a psychiatrist, neurologist? Because as you mentioned, you know, it's it's very easy for, um, and you know, for, not for one minute we're saying that um, the drugs and stuff don't serve a purpose, but I know that you you have more of a um, a global view on it all. You've 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 journeyed into your own psyche, if you like, and you sort of done the work yourself and and you know hearing you speak you're talking about archetypes you're talking about um all of this stuff that doesn't really fit into a box it doesn't fit into a um an exam paper or or maybe it does in 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 the psychologist sense but it's it's not something that's tangible or it's not something which is um there for everyone to see it it comes in the way of, of the suffering which is internal but it can be disguised externally and um I just find it fascinating that you know you're balancing both both worlds and and how do you how do you look to operate with that like is there is there is is there sort of a straightforward way that you operate with it and 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 sort of a, an assuredness that that it's something after suffering yourself after having mm-hmm. these feelings yourself and, and journeying um, yeah yeah what's what's your viewpoint there yeah the the I appreciate the question because it really gets to the heart of the matter of how we practice medicine today Mm -hmm. and where the field of medicine is going. Mm -hmm. The way we practice medicine today is still largely allopathic, Western, reductionistic, look at a part of the body, try and fix that part of the body, but you're not really appreciating the gestalt of the whole organism. How that part of the body, like if 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 I see you and you have a traumatic brain injury and I'm only trying to get your brain better, but I'm not actually identifying why your brain might not be getting better on its own, Mm. then I'm missing 99% of the puzzle. Because our brains, just as our bodies, are organized as as self-healing machines. Thankfully so. Yeah. You know, we've evolved from being able to also know in nature what are those natural substrates, plants, medicines, minerals, clays, salts, food, that we can use to accelerate our own healing. 
right? But the body by nature is meant to be regenerative. And when someone's brain is not healing, then the first question for me is why not? And usually it's because there's a variety of things that we haven't that that that, that haven't been appreciated in the gestalt. If we just take it hardware, physiologic. There are three primary systems that need to be addressed if the brain hasn't healed after even a mild concussion and somebody has now post-concussive syndrome. If somebody has repeated injuries like yourself, you know, Dan, myself, you know, combat sport athletes where you're just consistently getting your head smashed, yeah. then, then, right, then at that point it might be like, yes, primarily neurologic. But for the vast majority of people, when they have a primary neurologic insult, i.e. a concussion slash mild to moderate traumatic brain injury, and it didn't heal on its own, then it's usually the result of one of three other systems or all of them being out of balance or not expressed in their total health. That's the, the digestive system, the immune system, and the hormone system. Because you, you need to have hormones in order to generate enough energy for a regenerative, for regenerative process. Um, your immune system, when it's compromised and working overload to fight off co-infections or other challenges, even if there's an autoimmune condition, usually from toxicity, then now the body's spending a lot of its energy towards the immune system to the detriment of rehabilitating the nervous system. And then number three, if the digestive system's off, then you're not assimilating the micro macronutrients that you need for regeneration anyway. So that's just one example of a way to understand that, that there is a larger entire system, the human system, made up of subparts, like the psychology is made up of subparts. The whole human system needs to be addressed. So then we get into the examination of that. We do the diagnostics. We intervene with therapeutics, and then we follow up to see if we're making progress. So there's a variety of ways to just get specific around that. Now, I've had the opportunity and the, the privilege to learn a variety of different systems. My first uh, true mentor was a chiropractor. The field of medicine that I resonate mo most with, kind of thematically and philosophically, is naturopathic medicine as well as osteopathic medicine because you're looking at natural ordered systems and how the whole zeitgeist of the physical being itself but only in the physicality is if you're just addressing it physically you're still missing a big part of the picture you have to look at the whole system so that includes body mind heart and soul as well as spirit but spirit's more of an umbrella term like our relationship to god creator etc but we have to look at all those systems because we are not just a physical body. We are, we are also a psych, uh, there's a mental body, an emotional body, and a soul body, so to speak. And when we develop an integrative model as allopaths, my, my training is in, my official formal primary training is in allopathic medicine. And then I studied a variety of other disciplines, including living in the jungle for a year, working with ayahuasca. Tell us more about that, mate. Tell us more about that, that journey into that and how that changed your way to operate as a doctor, but also your way to live your life as well. Yeah, that was um, you know, interesting how we go through these rites of passage that aren't really 
scripted by the ego <laughs> because the ego is going to get its ass kicked because the ego is going to get now ruffled from all its known safety and security. And that again, writes a passage stage one disruption. That means disruption from the ego disruption from safety, security, what you've known as the, the, the real safe, um, like codified and convenient world. And then you go into the liminality, you go into the the in-between world, that second stage transformation. So for me, my med- my formal allopathic medical training, I went to medical school, residency in psychiatry, two fellowships in psychiatry, one in forensic psychiatry, one in child psychiatry. And then on the and then I graduated from all that training and I had a clinic in um, integrative psychiatry where I was helping kids come off of medications and and we were doing great work, but there was still, in retrospect, some part of the soul essence of the practice that was a bit missing. Mm. And um, I was going did through always, a separation. Did you always have like a, a bit of a, a suspicious mentality? No. Oh. <laughs> no. No, not at all. You know, it was interesting, though, how it all happened was perfectly orchestrated for me to be in the role that I get to play today, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in integrative medicine, specifically herbs and specifically other natural treatments to help a person's psychology go through a a more gentle and uh, more comfortable and more easily to integrate therapeutic process of healing, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and pain. I didn't really buy into the pharmaceutical model because um, it's, it's not a sustainable model. Medications are good for arresting symptoms in the midst of a crisis, and so medications have their place for sure, but unfortunately, our medical system tries to make them as the be-all, end-all, save-all, and over time, they stop working, people get side effects, you have to increase the dose, and then it's really complicated. So my medical training was bookended by two big rites of passage. The first one I told you about where I broke my neck changed my orientation of medicine going into training. And then the second one was when I finished all my medical training and I was just getting into clinical, like my own private clinic, finding my own kind of style of practicing medicine. And I was going through a separation and a divorce at the time. I was still fairly guarded and walled off and not um, in touch with my emotional landscape. And so when we, we had come to the, just the natural conclusion of our relationship and in the separation of it, I couldn't feel any of it. I was super cold, super walled off, um, super armored, you know, emotionally and psychologically. And I knew I didn't want to live my life that way. And I made a a strong intention at the time. We could even call it a prayer like, wow, help me, whoever, you know, is in charge of (laughs) the greater order. Because I didn't have, at that point, I I was a practicing Buddhist. And I wasn't so much in like Christian philosophy at that point. So my relationship to like the larger whole was more around my own experience with karma and the cycle of evolution and and realizing that if I'm going to get stuck on this hamster wheel for another go around, eventually I'm going to have to figure out how to open up my heart. So I might as well do it now. And so I made a big intention and prayer to open up my heart. And I was introduced to an ayahuasca circle about six weeks later. And I learned more in one weekend with ayahuasca than I had in one decade of psychotherapy. And so I closed my clinic in about over the course of about six months, moved down and lived in an ashram for two years, just getting ready to um, journey down. And then eventually did, lived in the jungle for a year after that. 
and didn't anticipate coming back, didn't want to come back. Um, I had found so much beauty and connection to different aspects of myself that I was disconnected to from before through the work with ayahuasca. And I did hundreds and hundreds of ceremonies as a part of an apprenticeship and eventually came back because I realized that my dharma was to be more of an educator on bridging the two, traditional, more earth-based medical technologies with our current medical framework. And so that's what I do now. And if I was to say at all what kind of medicine I practice, it's transformational medicine. Yeah. And that's, I think, where the whole field of medicine is going. We've moved from allopathic medicine to functional medicine, which is an improvement, but it's still fairly reductionistic and it's not the whole self. And now we're moving from functional medicine as, a, at least in the United States, and I think this is what's going to eventually happen globally, is into transformational medicine. And transformational medicine, by the way, is not like a hugely new idea. <laughs> Most codified medical systems that have stood the test of time, at least in written history, had an appreciation for a whole world and whole self-view. The Egyptians, Greeks, Romans, even Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, all of which are ancient medical technologies, and two of which, Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, are still very active today. There's an appreciation of the physical body, the mental body, the emotional body, and the soul body. Yeah. And we now need to reclaim that as a current medical industry to appreciate that if we're not looking at all of those levels, then we're not looking at the whole picture. For sure. And that's quite an interesting point. I, mean, I do feel like the things I've seen, and I'm probably a lot more alert to it after looking into mental health and um, concussions and what's been going on, but it does appear that the lines of spirituality and, I guess, um, science are starting to converge and i guess that's what you're talking about in that that specific scenario and and for people that don't know me you know could you tell us the background of ayahuasca what it is um what it does and what it did for you as well in specific like how, you know how did you feel during it did it take you down a certain path could you tell us a little bit more about that yeah absolutely yeah in many ways my expression, so to speak, um, or my opportunity to serve the field of transformational medicine is very much born from those two rites of passage. So the first one is me getting my brain smashed and realizing, oh, okay, there's a brain-body connection. That's allopathic MD kind of hardware work. The ayahuasca work was all the software work, the psychology, the soul-level medicine, and getting into deeper aspects of self-awareness, self-knowing, self-investigation, personal development, personal mastery. And now the, the combination of those two is what transformational medicine is. Taking hardware technologies with software technologies and being able to amalgamate those into the highest opportunity to fairly efficiently and directly up-level somebody's operating system. If we're just taking like a computer analogy. If you want to upgrade your computer, you upgrade the hardware and the software and the user interface. The operating system that essentially allows the ego to engage with reality or its experience of its own self. So we're, we're bringing all those together. And ayahuasca was, was so new. I didn't have any, thankfully, I didn't have any expectation going in. This was 15 years ago when I was first introduced to ayahuasca. I didn't have any expectations going in. I had no, I'd done zero reading. 
Um, I very much trusted the person who was my best friend at the time, a naturopath. Um, he's still one of my dear brothers. He just we, he lives in Portland. I live here, and we don't get to see each other as much. But he's still uh, one of the dearest brothers I have on the planet. And he, at that time, we had only known each other about six months, but we had an immediate connection, and I immediately trusted him. And he immediately could see that I was in a place where I was making a strong prayer, so to speak. I actually met him in a sweat lodge uh, community. I was studying a lot of Lakota medicine at the time. And I think maybe it was because in one of those lodges, I made a prayer like, wow, I, I really am, am crying for a prayer here, crying for a vision of help me understand how I can open up my heart or what, what do I need to do? And I think it was after that sweat where he said, you know, I've got, I've got a connection to a group that I think you might enjoy um, that, that could help. And so he introduced me to ayahuasca and then, you know, and then I just jumped head first, full, full on, full in, as I tend to do with things. You like to jump head first, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to do that. And so I jumped in head first to Iowa and eventually, like I said, moved down to the jungle, went through an apprenticeship path. And, and the thing about Aya that's interesting too, because I believe in many ways, like many of the psychedelics, they work on the hardware and the software, especially something like ayahuasca and cannabis and psilocybin and iboga and the natural medicines that all of which that I just mentioned, those four all stimulate something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. They all wow. stimulate the neurons to have better communication and better function and therefore can support regenerative neurology after a head injury. That's why I think that I got so much out of ayahuasca because it was the first time my brain truly felt like it came online. And after even writing the concussion repair manual, and you so fast forward 12 years later, um, I was doing a lot of consultation, consultation work with combat athletes and helping them get on protocols to help heal their brain. So I wrote the concussion repair manual. And then I still knew, you know, at that point, my brain went from like what felt like 30 to 40% function when I had severe post-concussive syndrome up to about 80 to 85% function, like significantly improved with all the ayahuasca work, all the therapeutics that I put in the concussion repair manual, um, except at that point I had not done stem cells or hyperbaric oxygen, which I've subsequently done and gotten even more. So now I'm probably around, if I could guess what feels like around 90 to 95%, at least of what we recognize as the usual kind of optimal range of neurologic function, which I still think, by the way, we're only scratching the surface because maybe we're only using like 10% of our neuronal capacity anyway. So where we could go, who, who knows, but for what's like available, at least in the here and now, it feels like I'm, I'm pretty doing pretty good. But at that time, the reason I bring all this up is because I was curious to know after all this work, 10, 12 years of a lot of work in the laboratory, spending somewhere between 250 and 300 thousand dollars of my own money just trying on new things and different things and seeing what works and what didn't work and I put that in the manual. I got my brain scanned at one of the Amons clinics and the medical director at the Walnut Creek um, office, he looked at my brain scan and he said, "Wow. I've seen somewhere around 14,000 brain scans and I've never seen one look as bad as yours. Wow. Function as well as yours." And I, and I said, well, that's kind of an interesting 
comment. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. I'm not sure. Should I be worried? And he showed me the scan and wow, there are these two huge tracks taken out of my prefrontal cortex, left and right. That is huge motor strips. They're just gone. This isn't, thankfully, it's not anatomically gone. It's just, it's, there's very low function. It's more of a glucose metabolism test, like the level of activity in these particular areas. So when you look at these, if you ever know, these are called SPECT scans, S-P-E-C-T. If you looked at a SPECT scan on um, uh, like an image or on a computer screen, you'll see it looks like a bit of like a cartoon image. And it can look like these big rat holes have just been taken out and these big chunks are missing. And I still have these huge strips that are just like, you know, at least metabolically, quote unquote, gone or at least dormant. And um, I said, well, yeah, that looks pretty alarming. I'm not super concerned about it because I feel like I'm doing pretty freaking good. And if you want to know why, it's because probably I've done all that stuff that I put in the manual. And of all those things, I still think ayahuasca was the absolute best. And and so ayahuasca is after your first your first dive headfirst into something. So you dived into a sandbar and then you dive straight into ayahuasca. Is that sometime after, about a year after, would you say? Uh, well, that was eight, no. That was 10 years after I broke my neck that I got right, introduced okay. to ayahuasca. And it was yeah. about six years after my sixth really bad concussion where I got turned upside down in that snowboard park and I started having really bad post-concussive syndrome after that. So after I'd done all that work with all these other therapeutics and tons of supplements and tons of practices and tons of other things, ayahuasca felt like it turned my brain on more than any of those things. Now, that's not to say that everybody's ready for ayahuasca or it's safe yeah. for everybody. There are contraindications. It's You can't be on psychiatric medications. Um, there are other things to just make sure people have the readiness of self-regulation strategies, breath work, being able to find your center in the midst of fear. Prior to that, I'd say if, if everybody, you know, if you're just physiologically safe to do ayahuasca, then at least float a handful of times, get in a sensory deprivation tank. If you can't hold your stuff together in a sensory deprivation tank, it's going to be really hard to hold your stuff together in an ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah, I think I think all of this that we're talking about comes with a caveat. Yeah, it's um, yeah, this seriously sort of the things that need to be respected in an in an enormous way. That that this from what I've read and what I've seen, I um, I understand that they they are um, really really powerful. Um, and and uh, you, you know, Dan, you're talking about in the good sense, but you know, there, there is stories and, and stuff where they've not been treated with respect, and and when things haven't gone so well 100 percent. yeah so it takes a lot of mindfulness and preparation to be ready to have an experience and so i don't want to just quote unquote sell it or evangelize it like it's the end all be all for many people yeah. it's amazing for many people it's not it just happened to be for me and part of the reason and, and we haven't really studied aya so much in regards to tbi but we know that it stimulates bdnf and we know that it decongests the lymphatic system from toxic residue. And oftentimes people are having a limited opportunity to fully heal from brain injury when they're full of toxins. And, and, and what's, what's, what's the lymphatic system then? Is, that the, is yeah. that the limbic brain or is that the... No, it's totally different. The lymphatic system is, is the storehouse of our toxins. It's, it's akin to our circulatory system, but it doesn't pump on its own. It doesn't have its own vasomotion. 
And so you have to pump the lymphatic system through movement, which is why exercise is really good. Um, consistently being like moving is really good. It's one of the reasons we're so toxic as a culture is we don't move enough. We don't flush our lymphatic system. And, and it's helpful to have just like you have a circulatory system that is the superhighway for all your nutrient exchange. Um, there's a lymphatic system that's essentially the garbage disposal that the toxins go in. And when you purge them out, then they go back into circulation to be eliminated through the organs of elimination. And that would be through the skin by sweating through digestive system, by pooping through your kidneys, by, uh, urinating. Um, and you want these detox channels to be open and ayahuasca is classically a purgative, which means it will flush particularly the GI system. So people either vomit or they poop. You either purge from above or you purge from below. It moves toxicity out of the system. So I think there was a variety of ways that it was moving things physically out of my system, but also emotionally and psychologically. So my big prayer going into my work with ayahuasca was helping me open up my heart, right? I did not know that the realization of that prayer was going to send me down a 10-year process of uncovering all of the trauma that closed my heart up in the first place. That is important to recognize because sometimes we have, and there were many times along that 10-year process where I didn't think anything was happening or what was quote-unquote supposed to be happening wasn't happening. Because I had an impression that opening my heart, it was going to feel really good. But <laughs> if you go through all the trauma so that your heart can stay open, then that's usually uncomfortable. So when I moved back from the jungle, I was initiated into a year-long suicidal depression. And that was my long, dark night. That stage two liminality in the cocoon. And there, were, there, were, there was a very intense month to two month process in the middle of that dark night where I was just done. I was ready to cash in my ticket. I didn't know a way out. I didn't know who I was anymore, what life was. Life had lost its sparkle and its meaning and its purpose. And I didn't think I was really necessary anymore. And I didn't think that it had anything else to offer me. And in the midst of that dark night, confusion, loneliness, etc., cetera, um, thankfully, I was introduced to a couple of seminal teachings. And I was in the midst of a community that, that loved me. So, you know, it's even harder when you're in isolation. Um, I had others that were trying to help me, so to speak, um, but it was my work to do and, and, it, and, and I needed to get the right teachings at the right time. Kind of like the, the old adage, when the student's ready, the teacher will arise. Well, my teacher was not somebody in a body, um, but he had lived before, and I just happened to be graced. I still don't know how his book ended up on my desk or altar, and it was uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Awesome book. Awesome, awesome book. book, right, dude? When you know yeah, his on backstory, yeah, on then, then you know that he made it through, or I'll just keep talking about my own process. I knew that he made it through something that I thankfully wasn't ever going to have to understand or appreciate likely in this lifetime. 
I, I, I don't know what it, it's like to be in a Holocaust concentration camp. I don't know what it's like to lose every member of your family, I think, except one, which maybe was his, his little sister. Um, just horrendous trauma exposure. And he yeah. came out, and in nine days after being released from the concentration camp, he wrote Logotherapy, which was man, which is meaning-centered psychotherapy. And he had already had a, a realization of this. His time in the concentration camp is where he lived it, and he practiced it. And he wrote that manual as Man's Search for Meaning as a treatise on our human potential, which essentially yeah. boils down to one statement. Well, from my perspective, it does. The last of the great human freedoms is the ability to choose one's own attitude in any given circumstance. Yeah. And when you know his backstory, you know he lived it. And when he laid that down, I knew I, I no longer had any excuses. And it was up to me to reclaim my faith in the process. And nobody could do it for me. And that was my work to do. So I radically started believing that the most uncomfortable stuff I was going through was actually purposeful without the evidence to suggest otherwise. Because my ego kept saying, well, there's, no, there's nothing to prove that that's right. <laughs> it yeah, all looks yeah. like it's pretty shitty and sucks from our side. But there was a growing deeper wisdom that chose faith in that moment or over the series of you know, the next weeks and months, gradually coming out with faith. And then I appreciated the fact that, oh, that is our work to do. That's our greatest power, is our ability to choose our attitude. Existential freedom. Existential freedom. And mate, that, that's amazing. That is a book that's played a massive part in my life as well, um, probably a bit later on. Um, in the years than you mate but the, the 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 quote of if you've got a strong enough why you can cope with almost anyhow has been something which yeah you, you lean on um well i've had to lean on um various times mate many many times in my life in my in my short rugby career as well um being battered from pillar to post um has been something that that, that has been a consistent for me in my short professional eight-year career but yeah mate i I loved everything you're saying there. You mentioned the Dark Knight of the Soul too. Um, and you mentioned the sort of the the inner wisdom. Um, and I think it's it's that thing that everyone sort of feels. They can't sort of um, quantify it or they sort of can't qualify it to, for, for what it is. I mean, I mean the, the ego is such an easy thing to be able to become aware of if you do your training if you're mindful enough you can you can be aware of that inner monologue and, and that sort of um that that force this is the force that's at play that that tries to run the show and that tries to tell you that you're wrong or that you're right and um and likes to to flip around every now and then um what's what's that other thing for you that sits at the table that sort of that deeper wisdom is is that something that you can quantify or you can qualify like it's it's an interesting question to to put to someone with your experience personally but also um I guess uh, medically and and um, 
you know, sort of with all the experience that you've had in in in, in exams and and um, and learning. What, what what do you feel like that is, and and is it something that can we can quantify? Because you know, you've been through these experiences, mate, and I imagine these archetypes and this sort of framing of the world has come from the jungle, and you know, you, you're sort of doing the job to balance both worlds and and as you say leaning towards more the transformative sort of way um so i I find it such a fascinating conversation mate but you know where does that that surge or that sort of faith come from is it something that we'll ever be able to pull down and and box up or is it something which like you say without evidence we we have to account uh, account for and and sort of rely on it sometimes yeah you know it's it's part of the the mystery and the magic. We there's no pill that's going to be able to instigate faith. There's no quick fix. It's a it's a reclamation. It's a redemption if we want to describe it as that. Some people would even call it a conversion experience. For example, um, you know, those people that have had either near death experiences and come to the light of their own realization or have in the middle of a suffering experience, um, go through a process of connection with God or their own divinity. There can be a moment, a flashpoint when it happens. And other times, I think this is more common that it happens gradually over time. The more and more we choose to reorient our attitude and our belief systems towards faith, like growing a garden, right? It takes time. We got to till the soil. We got to, we got to do the deep investigation work to get rid of as much of the fear and doubt and trauma and worry and all the old programs and then plant our seeds of new opportunity, plant the seeds of new faith and then till that soil, stay inspired these kind of podcasts, these kind of stories, you know, my job among others, but one of the things I see principally is my opportunity is to share this kind of story in the framework of historical context of the hero and the heroine's journey. Like Joseph Campbell wrote in Hero with a Thousand Faces, where the protagonist will go through a process of their own suffering in order to come out the other side more whole. Right, Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, Jake Sully in Avatar, Neo in The Matrix, um, and then in so many stories with the feminine, arch- you know, archetype as the heroine doing the same kind of process. And so, this is it's in our soul lineage, so to speak. We could even describe that it's maybe this is part of the, some of the junk DNA that our epigenetic choices are activating. And by the way, junk DNA is not junk. It just means that we haven't yet figured out what it does. <laughs> just like yeah, yeah. Most, most things that we call weeds are actually plants with medicinal properties. We just haven't figured out yet. So like, it's so arrogant to say that we know everything and that whatever we don't know doesn't matter. <laughs> just not use. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. We, we, there's so much left that we've got to account for and, and understand and work out for ourselves. It's, there's so much more. And, and you mentioned in there, those different films, the different stories are all based on that hero's journey. They're all based on that structure of life. You mentioned the, the, before the disruption, the transformation, the integration, like, 
that's the skeleton or that's a framework of, of what the hero's journey is. And it's something that we're all sort of subconsciously aware of, I guess, like with the films that we watch, the stories that we read, the, the films that really touch us and the ones that, that make, end up making the most money and, and the most sort of um, impact is because it's, it's so deeply or innate or within us or something about it just touches upon that, that, that thing of what it is to be human and what it is to go through the worst of suffering to experience the, the worst that you can imagine. Um, everything's relative to, to yourself. Um, and you mentioned, Frankel, the, the stuff that he went through, you know, that purpose that he had to see the other side of the Holocaust so he could finish his work, his book, to, to help humanity. Um, you know, it, it blows me away every time I think about that I book know. and every time it's, I go back it's to it. It's just the story of legend just by itself. Yeah. For sure, for sure, and it's it's something that that I get so interested in, and I speak to, um, as I mentioned, um, a friend that I've got called uh, John Bell, who's a psychotherapist, and he's he, he looks at um, you know the, the sort of the the will for meaning and and the will for pleasure, the will for um, purpose, and and I find it so liberating for. For men, and, and, and you know, we, we're sort of, um, I know I'm conscious of time, Dan, um, yeah, for, for the podcast because we've got on a roll and we're on a roll. But, you know, the messages that we can send, as you say, that the, the, the role that you've picked up, that understanding and that sort of liberation to, to say, look, you don't have to have it all sussed out and it doesn't have to be going the way that you're, the, 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 the sort of fantasy mind or, the story of your ego wants to go because sometimes it doesn't it don't happen like that, and um, mm-hmm. sometimes away, and sometimes we've got to suffer and and stress um, con- continuously um, mm-hmm. going forward and 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 wait for it to to pave away. Um, so I do believe, mate, that it's 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 brilliant that you're doing roles like this and you're integrating. You know, you're a fan of integrative medicine, but you're integrating all of the stuff that, that people need to hear. And, and as I mentioned, that the source of comfort is to know that the, the suffering I feel is for a bigger purpose as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. Well, I know we didn't, we didn't necessarily get to all of the neurologic stuff that we were anticipating. Um, so we might do that on a future podcast or, um, you know, highlight some of the therapeutics in the, in the concussion repair manual and then more dive into some of those modalities. But, Sounds like we might be, we might be teeing up for a, a round two. I think so, mate. We, we've, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm here, I'm here suffering with concussion and, and struggling. We talk about the overworldly or the same worldly, but the less spoken about and the, the less quantified and clarified stuff. Um, but that's that, that does make me tick. That makes me ask questions and it excites me a lot. But so maybe the round two, we we zone down into more of the textbook i've got your manual right here mate um but we'll we'll have to touch upon that on the next one pal sounds great absolutely sounds great cheers for coming on dan legend yeah absolutely i look forward to the next time 100 yes sir all right brother take care well guys what a chat that was uh, always always in at the deep end with those mentality pods um thank you for listening guys and you know, just just listening back to that and hearing back to that, um, 
it was hard to see a way forward. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've seen some little improvements where I'm not having full-blown migraines every day. Um, there's always a background hum and background noise, um, but not having full-blown ones. I've not had for at least a week, which is quite a nice, um, nice period. Um, obviously, concussion, uh, suffering with concussion is not linear, um, but I'm enjoying those that time. And also the dizziness, I've been working out on the vestibular rehab with someone new, and it's, it's pulling up um, to give me a bit more time walking normally before I get dizzy. So these are little gradual improvements, the progress, and I'm sticking with them. And, and I'd want to say a big thank you to all the guys at Evolve for letting me have a space to talk openly, to talk honestly and to feed right into my purpose too um, which is exactly that and if you are interested in evolve you can always drop us a line you can drop me a line on instagram on twitter um, to ask any questions you might have it's literally um, something which is there for you if you need it it's the one-stop shop it's your physical health workouts yoga and your mental health the mindfulness, different types of meditation, different types of breath work, all there banked up, ready for you to try alongside a journey that we're all going on. The concept club where we share different books, we share different ideas, we talk about those, moving through different themes each month. And then we also have the workshops that I've delivered and the other top peak performance people will be delivering too. And it's mentality. It's all mentality, so it's all good. If you listen to this podcast, you'll probably have a good idea for what will be in there and how much you may enjoy it. So enjoy the rest of your day, guys. I am so grateful that you're listening to the mentality, that you are even bothering to turn it on um, and listen to it and listen to me waffle on. <laughs> but guys, if you could give us a review on whatever platform you're on, if it's on Apple Podcasts, that'd be grand. Five stars would be lovely. And anything else that you can, just, uh, yeah, don't be afraid. And reach out, reach out, because I always love hearing from people that listen to the Mentality Podcast. It gives me a pump in the tyres when I need it. So cheers, guys. Stay safe and see you on the next one.